He didn't think it could be done. He'd been burned before, having his work not treated the way he envisioned. Maybe this guy from Texas can help this troublemaker. He might make some sense out of this world of criminals, frauds, bullets. So much rain. On this episode of Moving Panels, we discuss Sin City. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and joining me today is a new guest host, so please welcome David Bedford. How are you, David? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always enjoy adding people to the Moving Panel family, and uh, excited to do this one. Uh, you know, kind of breaks away from the norm. It's not Marvel, it's not DC kind of an independent comic, even though it was released with, by Dark Horse, which is connected to, to one of the big companies. But but what, what's your, what was your fascination with Sin City to make that one you were wanting to do? Um, so honestly, it was it was the writing of Sin City. I've, I've always been a fan of Frank Miller. He has a, a very distinct uh, art signature about him. You can always look at Frank Miller art and know that that's Frank Miller. But what always got me with him as a as a comic book artist was his writing. I just fell in love with the way he writes characters and even the dialogue that he writes for him. He he writes in a style that it's the characters just talk the way that you wish you could talk if you weren't yeah. constrained by societal norms. Yeah, the dialogue definitely makes it interesting to take his work and we'll obviously talk about this in more depth to take his work and translate it into a film. Yes. Because he writes in a way that it's very difficult to translate that. But we'll get into more of that. Uh, let's go ahead and get into some of the background. So the movie Sin City was released. I did not know this, that it was an April Fool's movie. It was released April 1st of 2005 uh, nationwide. Of course, as David just said, it was written and directed by Frank Miller, the man who created it all. Uh, he even has a cameo in the movie. He plays the priest that Marv visits and then kills in the confessional. Uh, the movie is also semi-co-directed by Robert Rodriguez, although Robert Rodriguez will always say this is Frank Miller's film, but you had to give it at least some name recognition, and Robert Rodriguez was a bigger name director. Robert Rodriguez uh, was actually the the reason that this film got made. Uh, you know, Frank Miller had had a run-in with Hollywood back during... Uh, the RoboCop sequels two and three. And uh, he vowed from then on just to step away from Hollywood. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. And then Robert Rodriguez contacted him about making Sin City and sent, he brought him into his, uh, his studio and showed him the, the cold open. The, I think it was uh, the customer's always right. And mm -hmm. that's actually what, when Frank was like, yeah, we could do this, but only because yeah. it was so true to the, to the actual book itself. Yeah, I love how he tricked him by saying, well, not tricked him, but he said, uh, we're just going to do like a little, you know, college student film. And he gets there to the studios that Robert Rodriguez has. Cause, and just like you said, Robert Rodriguez said, come down to Texas. This is not, it's not Hollywood. I'll show you how we do things in my neck of the woods. And uh, Frank gets there and he looks around at this giant production set. He was like, college film, huh? So, but yeah, uh, he, he wrote RoboCop 2 and 3. Although, uh, like we were kind of talking about earlier, his his writing doesn't really work for a lot of studios. And so he claimed, well, not claims, I believe him, 
that the studio intervened a little too much, and so what we got was not what he intended. Uh, he did later get to participate in the RoboCop comics, and so we got to see a little bit more kind of a Frank Miller's interpretation of the character. Uh, this was also not only in with movie writing, but in the 80s and 90s, Frank Miller was also really big at Daredevil. He had written Born Again. He had written a couple of other stories. There's one that I don't know why it's slipping my head right now about Kingpin that I actually talked about in a previous episode. But pretty much everything he did with Daredevil in the 80s and 90s to pretty much break the character down, build him back up, which is why it was called Born Again, you know, really dive into his Catholic roots and all that. Then 2003 comes around and they completely ruin all of that with the Daredevil movie. Born Again was my very first exposure to Frank Miller as a as a writer or anything to do with comics. I had zero idea of who Frank Miller was before I read born again. And from then I was, I was pretty much hooked. Oh, I don't blame you. I, I will say with me, it was dark Knight returns. Dark Knight returns was my first experience with Frank Miller, which is kind of funny since I'm such a big uh, Superman fan because Frank Miller clearly does not like Superman. <sighs> I know this isn't this probably isn't the the right forum for that, but I think you and I have talked in the past, uh, not doing the podcast, but the Batman Black and White. It was just a, a collection of of one shots, and there was there was the one panel, and Frank Miller wrote this particular uh, one shot where Batman and Superman are kind of having this this heated conversation because Batman had a botched raid on a mobster's house, and Batman kind of tells Superman off. He's like, you know, you have the audacity to come in here and tell me how to do things. I'm not bulletproof. I'm not, you know, a demigod. Basically, you get to operate in the day. I have to operate in the shadows and use fear. And that was all Frank Miller. And yeah, like you said, I think there's always been that. It's almost like a like an envy. Like Batman yeah. knows what he could do with like a tenth of Superman's power and ability, and it just drives him crazy that Superman is all like, oh, peace, justice, American way. Yeah. No, yeah, the shot in uh, Dark Knight Returns where Superman's just got his foot propped up Captain Morgan style on a stone, and then there's just a bald eagle resting on his, his arm. It's just clearly, he's going, yeah, this is just this giant Boy Scout who can apparently do no wrong. All right, so let's get into the, the comic that this movie's all based on, or the series of comics that this is based on. So Sin City is a collection of comics. He started releasing those in 1991 through Dark Horse Comics. In fact, the first uh, storyline that we'll get into a little bit later was just released through Dark Horse Presents. And then later they would get their own separate releases. This was actually the first success that Miller had with original characters. Um, some would argue 300, but nope, 300 is based on historical events. So he was using real people and... Uh, real ideas, and even the movie's not 100% original because there was a movie back in 1962 called The 300 Spartans that told the exact same story. So it may have been Frank Miller's style, but again, not an original story and characters. And this was his first big success. Sin City is a collection of seven uh, stories, quote-unquote. Uh, this movie is composed of the first, third, fourth, and then four pages out of the sixth book. That's a little bit odd of a storyline or a timeline there. Oh, it, we'll definitely get into how kind of the timeline works on this. It, it started off, as we talk about, with the Customer's Always Right, which was the opening. 
and kind of the ending of the movie. This is what they filmed first. This was what the kind of test screening was for Frank Miller. Let's film this. Let's see how he likes it. He liked it. They put it in the movie. The actual story comes from a collection of stories uh, that was first in The Babe Wore Red and Other Stories. Booze, Broads, and Bullets. And then it was released later as Booze, Broads, and Bullets. Uh, So it was released first in November of 1994, and then when Frank put all of these short stories together, he called it Booze, Broads, and Bullets, and that was in November of 2010. And even though it's a whole bunch of little individual stories, it is considered the sixth uh, installment of the Sin City collection. Then we have The Hard Goodbye, which is the original story. And that was released. It just actually just had the name Sin City because this was before there was going to be any type of series to this. And it was inside of Dark Horse Presents numbers 51 through 62 between April of 91 and May of 92. It later got the name The Hard Goodbye once it was released as a graphic novel and was then going to be part of a collection of stories. We then get The Big Fat Kill which was released as five issues between November 94 and March of 95. That is the third story. So he skips over the second story in this movie. The second story is a dame worth dying for, killing for, a dame to kill for. Yes. Yeah, sorry. A dame to kill for, which they then turned into the sequel, which we're kind of going to dance around not talking about that in this episode because they waited nine years to make it. The sequel actually was a prequel. Yeah. So the the sequel prequel of uh, the Big Fat Kill was a dame to kill for. That's when you first meet Dwight as a character, as far as a chronological list of yes. events go. And, and again, we'll get into that in the moving panels where we're talking about how it all connects to the comics. Then we get the Yellow Bastard, which is the fourth story, which was a six issue run from February to July of '96. And then there was the the seventh book, which we're not gonna even mention because. It hasn't been turned into a movie, but these are all noir crime stories. Like, uh, like David said earlier, this was Robert Rodriguez just being a fanboy and wanting to do it. Frank didn't think that his work could be translated into movies like we talked about earlier, but uh, they did it. Definitely not this one. (laughs) Yeah, this one's it's it. This amazing how successfully they were able to translate this into a movie. I mean, just just the the elements that you deal with in this, the the scenes and what you see and what you hear them say and all of that. You're like, there's no way, like even by Hollywood standards, they would, you know, put this on a screen. And and of course, we'll get into all that in great detail in the moving panel section. But let's go ahead and get into the characters. And I mean, there are so many characters, uh, so many big actors. I just want to focus on main ones. Of course, if David wants to mention any, uh, he can, of course. Mention what he wants to mention. And I got to start with the other than Josh Hardnett and Marley Shelton that we see at the very beginning who don't really have major parts. Uh, the first big character we see is Hardigan, played by Bruce Willis. Uh, I got a question. Do you think Bruce yeah. Willis was actually old enough to play Hardigan? Well, uh, at the time of filming, I think he was what, 50, early 50s, he maybe 50, 50 on the nose. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the line from the movie is, you're pushing 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, he was, I don't know. Bruce Willis has always looked very young for his age. I don't know, maybe it's 
his yeah. fitness routine well, it's or weird. whatever. He kind of has a weird Benjamin Button thing because yeah. you go back to like Moonlighting and he actually looked older because he was probably in his late 20s there. Yeah. And then, yeah, as he got older, he also started looking a little younger. It's it's hard for me to put it on a scale because, you know, I was really young when Moonlighting was a thing. So just any adult looked ancient to me yeah. when I was a kid. So I know uh, they were actually looking or they looked at uh, Michael Douglas to play the role of Hardigan. Hmm. And uh, I always like I, I really enjoy the hey, we offered it to this person, but they, they didn't want it or whatever. I always enjoy trying to imagine what it would have looked like, you know, with some of these other people in these roles. But I've always liked Bruce Willis. Oh, I'm a huge Bruce Willis fan. For this particular role. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to say I didn't like him as Hardigan. But my thing was, when I'm when I'm reading the comic, I more picture it being like Clint Eastwood. So I hear that Clint Eastwood, you know, that just dry gravel voice. Uh-huh. You know, wife's got a steak home waiting for me at home. You know, just that, yeah. just cigarettes and, and gravel in his voice, just. Yeah, I definitely hear Eastwood. I think that would have been a, a cool character to see. Oh, I think it could have worked with Clint Eastwood. I mean, I get you, you had to use someone like Bruce because of a lot of the physicality. Speaking of physicality, just real quick. So he's stumbling through the alleyway, having chest pain and giant. I mean, he's clutching his chest the whole time, falling over, you know, pounding his feet into the pavement. He climbs haphazardly up the stairs and places his hand on the doorknob. And then the next scene from the interior shot of the door is this door just going to pieces. 60-year-old, chest pain, having a heart attack, rescuing this girl just explodes open this door. I'm sorry. I just had to go off on a little tangent there. Oh, no. There's so much of that. I mean, even the fact of... How many times and the way he is shot at the beginning by his partner and then he survives that. He's totally good, which all of these characters do that. Like these characters are superhuman when it comes to a lot of this. That again, uh, it's it's one of the things that draws me to it because, mm-hmm. you know, if if you've got to die, you know, a death that that comes from being shot to death, wouldn't it be great to go out in that? blaze of glory just eating 37 bullets all to save <laughs> this little kid who you don't know like isn't that like a glorious death oh yeah and again i think that's where it works being yeah. bruce willis but i think it could have also worked being clint eastwood you know he and the other great thing about bruce willis because he's so he can so easily be silly and he can so easily go into his comedic roots you know that we've seen in like the diehard movies but he keeps it keeps a good solid performance that is really believable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like just going to the character of Hardigan, you're even talking about when uh, he's being hanged by the yellow bastard. Mm-hmm. That's not the way a guy like that should go out. And so right. he even like, he was like, no, wake up. Not here. Yeah. Not now. And I do. I, of course me as a big Bruce Willis fan, I did find it funny. The connection between him being barefoot and shattering a bunch of glass. Yes. I think a lot of people <laughs> picked up on that. Also, uh, when he goes into the, the farm trying to rescue Nancy after the yellow bastard took her and he's, he's been shot up. So he's, he's lying face down on the ground and the cop comes over and he's like, you know, 
make sure he's dead, you know, put, put some more rounds in him, make sure he's dead. You don't want him sneaking up on you. And he flips over and boom, boom. He says, good advice, which is a direct tie into Die Hard because he did the same thing. There's a lot of Die Hard uh, tie-ins there. Well, again, it's because it, that's what John McClane kind of was, was the the everyman who seemed Superman. He couldn't actually, he couldn't stop him. Uh, speaking of the Superman of this storyline, let's talk about Marv. Oh, I love Marv. Played by Mickey Rourke and kind of his comeback uh, you know, after this, he would do The Wrestler. He would do Iron Man 2. Uh, so this was kind of the beginning, his revival, uh, which Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino both are just notorious for doing, bringing back uh, actors and, and reviving their careers. And man, the prosthetics, mm-hmm. they make him look exactly like the comic book character. It, it was like when he came on screen that first time, I was like, holy crap, like you know prosthetics had to have you know played a part in that but you just it's seamless so like mm-hmm. you know watching the movie you're like okay i understand this had to be done but you don't see any like there's there's no you can't see the strings attached basically like there's no it's seamless yeah he didn't look like a overly makeup prosthetic dick tracy character right like it, it <laughs> dick looked tracy. it looked like an actual person just big mean lumbering Another point there is with with Hardigan, with Marv, with Dwight, you like I said earlier, these guys talk the way you wish you could talk, but they also act and behave the way you wish that you could act and behave. Like I wish I could be as good and upstanding as Hardigan, as indestructible as Marv. I mean, just his sheer loyalty. I, I don't mean to get off off topic, but no, you're fine. Just how loyal and and lumbering he was as a character he just that's that's he was an innocent kid i mean not innocent but you know marv had that more childlike mentality like sloth from the goonies yeah you're my friend so i'm gonna go over here and wreck this guy's world because yeah you told me you, to. you treat me with humanity and you show me respect and i'll return the favor now that's exactly what marv's character is whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy uh, and that was the other thing to make Marv look so uh, so big of a character because Mickey Rourke is not that big. I didn't know that. I I thought he was actually a, a big guy because you know you see him in Iron Man two. He's a big guy. You see him as Marv. He's a big guy. It was funny. Uh, one of the other characters in there, Cardinal Rourke, mm-hmm. was actually in real life is taller than the guy playing Marv. And he's depicted as a dwarf in the comic book versus Marv, who stood in at seven foot tall. But I mean, Mickey Rourke developed, uh, again, heard this in the commentary, that he developed this walk that just made him, just the walk made him seem bigger than he was. And he did a great job. Uh, I I have nothing but admiration for Mickey Rourke's performance in this. When he goes off talking to his shrink about... Just nonchalantly, he's, yeah, I got in a fight with some cops. It's like, no, nah, they know they got in a fight. Oh, she asked, did you kill any of them? No, nah, but yeah. they know they've been fought with. Yeah. And he just goes off. I, I, I love, I love Marv. But again, he's so superhuman. I mean, he, you talked about Hardigan busting a door. I mean, that's one of the first things we see Marv do, too. Mm-hmm. Is Not only does he blow the door into pieces, but he knocks out like four cops in the process. Dives head first down the center of a stairwell. 
Yeah. Jump, jump through a car, a cop, uh, cop's windshield. Yeah. Drop kicks a, a windshield. Uh, he later just like scales a building like he's the Hulk. See, I wish we could get I, I wish we could get more backstory on Marv. Like I I would watch an entire I would binge watch a series on Marv. I want to know who he is, like where he came from, just all the kinds of stuff that goes into him as a character. Uh, some of the, the stories that happened, not necessarily in the movie, but in the comic books was the, the story where the, the fraternity kids were dousing bums with gas and lighting them on fire just for fun. And that just, it just didn't set well with Marv, this, you know, the seven foot tall boy scout almost, you know, he has his own code of honor in the middle yeah. of this just God awful crime ridden, corrupt city. Yeah. A, a lot of these characters do. The, yeah. Even though they're criminals, they have a code. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, it's very admirable. He chases those guys down, but you see, I guess more to my point was he goes into the, to the neighborhood that he comes from and doesn't speak or any of the dialogue. They're on rooftops and, you know, they're fighting and all this stuff. He just throws his hand in the air, makes a quick gesture. And I guess somebody's like, Oh yeah, that's Marv on a rooftop beating up some frat guys. Like that's normal for a Thursday. Hucks him a knife out the window. Marv catches it and goes to work on the guys. So I want to know like the, the, the stories like in that neighborhood, that developed Marv into what he became. I think that would make for a good, uh, a good TV show. Yeah. Well, there might be possibility of that, but we'll talk about that that later. I think the closest we get to anything like that is when we get Dwight's very quick, the the fact that he respects Marv and Mm -hmm. he talks about Marv, which is the only thing to my knowledge, the only thing from this movie that actually comes from a Dame to kill for that little monologue that Dwight does in the bar to kind of explain Marv um, actually comes from a dame to kill for. He would have been more at home on some ancient battlefield, swinging an axe into another man's face. What's what's great. You got Marv. Who's this, you know, lumbering giant uh, in the comics, you know, the way they portray him in the movie and his main villain is tiny little Frodo. Uh, (laughs) Elijah Wood playing Kevin. Yeah. He's creepy, man. Very you creepy. Know, you know they digitally shaved his chin. They, really? they moved his yeah to to give him just that more like something's not right about him aside from the oh, vacant <laughs> stare and the grin. The, yeah, the staring and the grin wasn't enough. Yeah, and the ridiculously sharp fingernails, which I don't think they show well enough in the movie. No, they just look like some some like drugstore Lee press on nails in the movie. <laughs> Like, even if he had grown those, wouldn't they have, like, bent and broken when he... I yeah, mean, they would have started curling. You look at Marv's face after Kevin got done with him, and he just, like, just destroyed his face. It looked like Marv went through a meat grinder. Did you uh, Did you know, I mean, let's say before you did any research or whatnot, would you have known that Elijah Wood and Mickey Rourke actually never filmed a scene together? No. No, and I was, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because I was going to. Uh, no, I, I thought it was, it was very seamless, but I, like you said, when I was doing my research, I was like, huh, they they just digitally Mm -hmm. composite him in. Um, same with, uh, Cardinal Rourke and Kevin, they never actually filmed together. They, they were cast at completely different times. Well, Robert Rodriguez is notorious for that. You know, he, he 
get that's how he so many of his movies has such big name actors because pretty much what he does is hey you free this weekend mm-hmm. and then he films every scene he needs with them and then et- figures out how to edit it into the movie that's insane but like i said it, it yeah. made for again seamless transition i never never knew that watching the movies no you you really have to stare it down to realize that even in their fight where you're going like there's no way they're not both there to realize that you're actually looking at when you can really see Marv's face, it's actually Elijah Wood's body double. And when you can really see Elijah Wood's face, it's actually Mickey Rourke's body double. Um, but you really, I mean, eagle eye have to be paying attention to see, to see that. Yeah. I think they, uh, they also did that a lot with uh, Nancy. Like when, when Marv takes Wendy to Nancy's house, they actually, mm-hmm. that, that scene wasn't the, two of them looking at each other. I don't think they ever yeah. saw each other. Um, but did you think the, do you think the portrayal of Kevin was well balanced? Well, uh, as far as the, the movie, you can't argue that, you know, the movie took any creative liberties or didn't, you know, stay true to the comic book. Uh, I want to say in my research, I learned that they actually used the comic books to storyboard the, the movie. Yeah. 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 Um, so no, all of that was spot on. And, you know, it It really kind of hurt my heart a little bit to, to see Frodo Baggins, who, you know, you love and adore. You put him up on this little pedestal from yeah. Lord of the Rings, and then now here he is being just this creepy little weird dude. Yeah. Eating people and cutting their face with his long Lee, uh, Lee Press-on nails. And that was the thing. This was, like, right after the Lord of the Rings. Like, I don't know... If- a hundred percent, but I think this was the very next movie he mm-hmm. did yeah. after uh, Lord of the Rings ended. They never that I that I saw anything. They never actually go into why he didn't speak. I know Cardinal Rourke says he sang, you know, he sang beautifully, and he only sang for me. Yeah, but you know, there's some there's some fan theories out there that there was some type of an illicit relationship between Rourke and uh, Kevin. And that the whole he only sang for me was more of a scream, just like the yellow bastard. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was trying oh, that not to make sense. Kind of, kind of trying not to give everything there. away because we haven't gotten into the yellow bastard yet. But there's just there's there's some uh, there's some some decent groundwork there to say that 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 could be why. All right. Well, let's move into our next ma- main character. I don't have a lot here because, like you were just saying, they connected this to the comic so well that it's hard to talk about these characters without going ahead and talking about the comic. Uh, but our next main uh, character of the three stories is Dwight played by Clive Owen really. And you talk about, again, it always comes back to these backgrounds. Like we find out very early he's come back. He has a new face, but yet we know nothing about why. I think that's the perfect way to meet Dwight. Because, you know, you, you come into this this cross-section of his life, uh, and it's just like meeting a stranger in public, you know? They have this rich history, this rich story of, of everything that they came from, but you don't know any of that yet. You have to you have to hang out with him a little bit more, get to know him some. I, Dwight McCarthy is, hands down, out of the entire series and books, my favorite character. Oh, wow. It's that, uh, that chivalry, you know? He would be more of the antihero, I guess. He doesn't do the right thing 
because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, or I'm sorry, he doesn't do what's right like Superman would. Superman's like, oh yeah, I'm Superman, so I do the right thing. Yeah. He does it more so just because it just needs to be done. Sometimes you've just got to kill people. Punisher. Yeah, Punisher. Like we said, they have a moral code, and really, they only go after the people who go against a code. Like, yeah, they, they only. These are all criminals, really, except for Hardigan. Hardigan's really the only non-criminal of these characters. But, yeah, I, I just... And, and like you talked about earlier, you know, you got Hardigan, who's the, you know, the white knight protecting this little girl without even really knowing who she was. It's, you know, it's all about Nancy. It's all about Nancy. Then you got Marv, who's this hulking brute. Uh, and then you got Dwight, who is just this very calm very cunning killer. But then he's also got, you know, the good looks and uh, of the, the three, he is the, I guess you would say better looking of the three. Well, definitely in, in uh, the big fat kill. Cause his, I guess, technical first appearance, which would have been the follow up to that in a Dame to kill for where, you know, he was bald. He just, he was not what I envisioned pre face changed white to look like. Well, and then, of course, his adversary, or I guess you'd say adversary, um, even though he dies halfway through the story, is uh, Jack Boy, played by Benicio Del Toro. And I got to tell you this, reading the comic and then seeing Benicio Del Toro, those characters don't match up to me. I'm not saying he, Benicio Del Toro didn't do a good job, but that's not the way I would have envisioned it as I'm reading the comic. Benicio Del Toro actually had a... He had a hand in the way Jackie Boy ended up looking on screen. I I thought as far as the actor playing him versus, you know, who we saw in the in the book, I thought it was pretty spot on. He doesn't play that typical Benicio del Toro role though. Like not like not like the usual suspects Benicio del Toro. Like that's that's, yeah. you know, who I always go to when I think of Benicio del Toro. I thought he did just like with Marv and his prosthetics. I thought it was very seamless. I thought it looked very good. Yeah. Big fan. I know, there was just there was something about that character that, in terms of the way it was portrayed in the comic versus the way he was portrayed in the movie, I was like again, worked worked for the movie, but I was just like, I don't see how that's the was same it character. the cadence really of his did. voice? I, I think it was. Yeah, I think that's what I was about to say. I think it was the way that I read the dialogue versus the way he delivered yeah. the dialogue. So it's like the opposite of like you know. You, you read Harry Potter and you come up with how these people look in your own brain. Well, same thing goes for a comic book, but you've already got how they look because it's drawn there on the page. And so you're mm. coming up with their voice and how you think it sounds. And then he comes out with that just slow draw, that weird cadence. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Especially, uh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep jumping on this, but especially after, you know, he was relieved of his mortal coil, so to speak. And <laughs> then his cadence just does another, like, just downshift that, you know, it's got you smoking. And he reacts yeah. to the environment. And I don't, one of the, I didn't care for Benicio del Toro as, as an actor. I hadn't really seen him in much. I liked him in Usual Suspects, but when I saw him in this, I was like, that's incredible. Like, he did really good. And it just, it was probably just a shrug off for everybody else. But in the passenger seat of the car, you know, his, his throat's been cut and his head lulls back 
And when he does, you hear that air escape out of the wound until he comes back down around and then he, mm-hmm. he gets his voice back. So it's like, uh, it was just really, yeah. I was like, that's some spot on attention to detail. Yeah, no, it, when he's in the car, when he's the deceased um, Jackie boy, yeah, his physical work and the fact that he really only moves his head. Yeah. Like he doesn't move any, like I don't even think his shoulders ever budge. Mm-mm. Like it's just his head and his neck. Yeah, no, I agree. Another character I think to kind of mention from that story is Rosario Dawson playing the part of Gail, the other protagonist to that story, I guess you would say. She's kind of the sidekick to Dwight, or you could say Dwight's the sidekick to her, uh, whichever way you want to look at it. What do you think of uh, Rosario Dawson in this? I've got a huge crush on Rosario Dawson. She will never do anything wrong, (laughs) in my opinion. I like that they were finally in, in this story giving Gail some more, I guess, some more responsibility, some more story time and this, that, and the other. Because you see her, you know, again, like like we said earlier, all of these stories are connected. Uh, and so every time you see her, she's just kind of like this side character, like, oh, yeah, there's Gail. She's over there checking her mail or whatever. And she's just like, oh, hi. And that's all you see of her. Like, she's just this support, this to let you know that there's other stories going on in the universe. But as far as uh, a big fat kill, I don't see one as the leader and one as the sidekick. I see them both as like leaders in their own little yeah, little oh, realms, yeah. and so they're almost they're almost kind of just you know allies at this point. And you know they come to find out in previous books they've had a lot of history together. Like it was uh, Gail and another character you're about to talk about. They're the whole reason that Dwight McCarthy survived his sequel prequel. Well, I also like that they, again, we're going to got to talk about the comics a little bit here because they're so intertwined. They actually replaced a, I think, an unnamed character in Marv's story and made it Gail in the movie when uh, Wendy has Marv tied up. Yes. And you've got the just random girl who says, you know, how did he break out of that? I tied those knots. That's my specialty. I like that they made that Gail mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, because like I said, you you see her any other time. She's just just one of the girls. Yeah, uh, another one of the girls uh, who, when we come back to Hardigan's story, is Nancy, played by Jessica Alba in a very very much more tamed down version of the character than the comic book. I think a lot of fanboys were very disappointed in uh, Jessica Alba's no nudity policy with her acting career. I think they were like, this is it. This is the one. And I thought she had a good point. I mean, it, would it have elevated the character? Would it have made that no. movie better in any way? And that that was exactly what Frank Miller and Robert Rodriguez thought. They were like, I mean, we don't care. Well, And I think it works, too, casting someone like, who, like Jessica Alba, who still has that very childlike look. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's still very baby-faced. And if you, you make her too grown up, they do in the comics, you know, you make her too far, too much far removed from the little girl that Hardigan was protecting. I think it does take away from that story. I think Jessica Alba, what I think that casting and that kind of just small little change in the character worked for the story they were trying to tell. Yeah. I mean, she has to maintain that innocence because, you know, you meet up with her, what, eight, nine years later, She's some chain smoking, like drug addict, some, some statistic of like sin city. 
would Hardigan come in and be like, uh, I came to rescue you, but no, I'm good. Yeah, I think, it, you know, and even the fact that she doesn't actually strip, I think it works because it's showing that she is this sweet, innocent girl who is just having to find her way of surviving in Sin City. And if in order to live and eat and all that, she has to dance at the bar, that is what she does. I mean, she drove away in a Ferrari, man. Like, <laughs> times can't be that bad. Huh? Maybe she stole it. But Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> All right, another character that I want to talk about, and then we can talk about any other character you want to talk to, is my favorite character next to probably Hardigan, and that's Miho. Love me some Miho. Miho is so great. Played by uh, Devin Aoki. She pretty much, she comes across as a very mythical character. You know, we talk about these other characters, how they can survive this and that and whatnot, but Miho, as soon as she's introduced, you're thinking... Okay, this is our comic book character. Deadly little Miho. Did she ever have a line in the entire series, book or movie? Not to my knowledge. I don't think so. But, no, I love Miho. Again, like you said, you, from the moment you see her walking across the rooftops until she's, she's the one who protects everybody, to then just the way she can take people out. She rides an explosion. <laughs> let's, let's make that clear. She steps back just enough so she can ride the shockwave of an explosion. Something they clearly taught in ninja school. Like I like how she handled uh, the big, the the bad guy giant. I don't think we've talked about him. Uh, and also, you pronounce that. I want to hear your pronunciation of of uh, Michael Clark Duncan's character. Oh, I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue. Manute. 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 I've I've pronounced it a thousand different ways, and I'm trying to remember how they said it in the movie. Yeah, that's what I was just Manalt. thinking of. Because if they say it, they only say it a couple of times in the movie. They might say it more in a Dame to Kill for, but I've honestly only seen that one once. So yeah. I don't but anyway, remember. when she comes down with that pole axe and just split screens him, that was awesome. I loved her. All right, so we we've got all these other great actors: Brittany Murphy, Alexis Bledel, Powers Booth. Carla Guino, Gugino. Josh Hardnett. Yeah, I always mispronounce. You're fine. <laughs> Josh Hardnett, Rudger Hauer, Jamie King, Michael Madsen, Marley Shelton, uh, and then Nick Stahl. Are there any of these other ones you want to to talk about? Because again, there's so we could have a whole hour long show just about the characters and the actors. We could, and, and I mean, in in the sake and, and interest of time, you know, I think we've I think we've touched on the ones that we you know, need to need to really get out there. I really enjoyed Powers Booth as uh, Senator Rourke just because he always just seems like that guy who's who's working the system for his for his oh, own. Yeah. You know, like it's just the characters he portrays. He's a he's a great actor. What are your thoughts? Do you think so? Alexis Bledel, whenever you see her, they do uh, one of the rare times where they do that flash of color She's always got the blue eyes. Now, there is a character from the comic book, uh, the female assassin, that they, they call Blue Eyes. So is this, uh, is this maybe trying to merge some characters into one? Because she didn't act like the assassin. Yeah, because she's the, she's the scaredy cat. Who, yeah, actually a little turncoat of, of Old Town. Yeah, who betrays everybody. 
I don't know. I, I think the blue eyes, because if you listen to the commentary with Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller, it was really just because that was her actual eye color. Mm-hmm. And Robert Rodriguez, because they talked a lot about turning it into black and white. Robert Rodriguez said because her eyes are actually that blue, when you turn it into black and white, her eyes become gray. Weird. And so that was just one of those moments where he just decided to keep it because it was so beautiful. Her eyes are so beautiful as they are. We're just going to keep that in color. Same thing. Same reason why he has uh, Dwight's car. That color is because that was the actual color of the car. Mm-hmm. And they just he just thought that was too beautiful of a car to wash it out in the black and white. I think seeing those flashes of color against all that dark, you know, black and white grittiness, it just really I mean, everything pops and you're just like, wow, that's I mean, it's, they make for some amazing shots in, in the entire movie. Uh, but what got me thinking about that was, you know, you see the last time you see her as a character is getting on that elevator with uh, who we learn is they call him the salesman. Josh Hartnett's character from The Customer's Always Right, who it's posited in the books that he may or may not have ended up becoming the character known as the Colonel, who runs these assassins. So anyway, that got me thinking. Blue eyes, working for the Colonel, maybe an assassin. Because we only we we are only led to assume he kills her. Correct. To actually recruit her. But we may never know. All right, let's get into the moving panels. And this one, there's a lot there because this is a direct translation. If you've seen the movie, uh, you've seen the comic book. If you've read the comics, uh, you're not surprised by anything you see in the movie. Because it is, I mean, very little is different. Um, I mean, even the furniture and items in the room match what they are drawn as in the comic. Yeah. You look at the book, it's, it's exactly laid out. I mean, shot for shot. I think the, the chronology maybe threw me off a little bit. Like we talked about that earlier, but I mean, aside from that, like you can, you can literally pull out your collection of books and just follow along with the movie. Yeah. I think the only other movie that I've already done for this podcast that was like that was Scott Pilgrim. You can pretty much pull the comic out and match up exactly what you're seeing on the screen. I've heard that. I've never actually read the the Scott Pilgrim Pilgrim books, but uh, I've I've heard that it was pretty true to form. And of course, there's a lot more in those uh, comics than there was obviously in the movie. Whereas this one, I mean, it's almost a hundred percent. If it's in the comic, it's in the movie. Uh, but let's get into each one of those and kind of talk about. It. So let's start off with the first one you see. Customer's always right. I mean, it was four pages. We pretty much got everything that's in those four pages. And I get that it's in the movie because that's what made Frank Miller say yes to this movie. But did it have to be like, do you think they could have left it out? I feel like we talked about Frank Miller, you know, was like absolutely once he saw that. But not only Frank, when they started sending that out, they uh, Robert Rodriguez sent that out when he would court actors to be in the movie. He would say, hey, be in this movie. I want you to play this part. Here's what we're doing. And they would sign on just sight unseen for this one block. So obviously there was there was just something special and magical about it. And maybe it was the fact that, you know, up until this point, we just hadn't seen a movie like this at that point. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say included all day long just based off of that reason. It just 
the way it was written, the way the way Josh Hartnett does his uh, his voiceover, I think it I think it's it it's an end for me. I like it. Oh, it's probably the best thing Josh Hartnett's ever done. I would a hundred percent agree with that. I, look, I, I do not know the man. I do not mean to speak ill will of anyone, but as an actor, he's not great. Uh, so, you know, it was good, but it just, I mean, it doesn't connect like everything else that there's at least something that intertwines and they force this one to intertwine by having Josh said, Josh Hartnett show back up at the end with Alexa Bledel's character, which never actually happened. Yes. That that's the one scene that's made up for the movie. But but that's the, my thing. It does not connect to any of these other stories, at least movie wise. Again, you know the comics a lot better than I do, but at least movie wise, these these characters have nothing to do with the rest of the characters we see in the movie. Well, and you know, not to not to pull it a different thread, but you know, in the sequel prequel, uh there's the one story and I'm I'm think it was written specifically for that movie because i don't recall uh seeing it in the books but the the story with joseph gordon levitt's character and the whole gambling thing and this that and the other like i don't i i think that this particular part just shows you that you know there's all kinds of weird stuff happening in sin city man come take a look and yeah i think we get spoiled that the main characters do have these uh, interwoven tapestries of their life. I mean, they all hang out in the same place, which is, you know, when you go to Katie's bar, it's like the hub of, of all of these different stories. And I think this is just one that's, you know, happening down a different weird back alley. Well, and so, so there, so there you have it, you know, you got Katie's bar, which is where we usually see a lot of the crossover. Why couldn't they have just put Josh Hardnett sitting at a, a booth in the background or something. Well, I mean, you see how dapper he is. He He's not a Katie's clientele kind of guy. He's, you know, he's doing his own thing. He's living his best life in a penthouse, assassinating people. All right. And you mentioned Dame to Kill For. So they skip over Dame to Kill For for this comic or for this movie. But the comic is actually what established Dwight. It explains the connection that Gail and again, we said, Michael Clark Duncan's character, Manuit, however you pronounce him, uh, it ex- explains their connection. I mean, do you think that it was a smart idea to skip over a Dame to Kill for? It wouldn't have been my go-to. The only the only thing I could think of is that, you know, a Dame to Kill for, and, and most of these, you know, are their own books. That Yellow Bastard is its own book. I wondered if it was like time constraints maybe got in the way, because a Dame to Kill for is is a pretty meaty story. Uh, I mean, it. you look at it and you're like, it's a standalone movie on its own. Whereas, you know, can you tell the story of that yellow bastard in, you know, a 20 minute little shot? I think you can. Well, and that's uh, in the commentary. That's kind of what he says is that if you had done a Dame to Kill for, you would have a lot of Dwight and then you would have to sacrifice, you know, something like that yellow bastard. Um, and I think his exact wording was, but when you have, when you have the ability to do that yellow bastard, you do that yeah. yellow bastard. Um, so yeah. And then like I said, Dame to kill for that whole episode all by itself, because as David just said, they did make a movie just for that, that story. Um, so then we get into the hard, uh, the hard goodbye, which is the first comic it's Marv's story. This is almost, as I said, it's a hundred percent 
intact, exactly what you see in the comic. The only thing missing is when Marv uh, speaks to his mom. His mom's just completely removed. No, she's from in there. The movie. And I, well, I'm sorry. I'm she sorry. Was? Hold on. So <laughs> when I was when I was preparing to to be on this podcast, I you know obviously went back and rewatched the movies and this that and the other. So I did. I watched the extended. The extended cut. And okay. she is in the extended cut. In yeah. fact, uh, he mentions that she's blind, so he has to uh, – but her hearing got better after she went blind. So it shows him like holding his boots in his hands, tiptoeing by her door. And mm-hmm. I don't think it was in the original movie where it shows him laying in the bed he grew up in as a child. There's a little toy airplane still hanging up in the yeah. in the room, which again, I, I took as – you know it just goes to show as big of a lumbering – big huge just massive guy who kills everybody he still kind of got this childlike innocence to him this childlike naivety but yeah he actually draws a gun on his mom because he thinks that they're the that she's the cops yeah no in the theatrical release they completely remove his mom so none of that's in there and what's crazy is as many times as i've seen sin city and i even own the big special edition of it I have actually never watched the extended cut. Oh, it's good. Let's see. Let's go ahead and move into the big fat kill. They do change in the big fat kill. Uh, they have again, Manuit crushing Gail's face. That's not what it was in the comics. In the comics, it was some fat burly guy named Davis. Yeah. I'm fine with little changes like that. I never have a problem with that. They also, uh, in the, in the comic, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this in the comic, I do believe you're supposed to assume that Becky just gets mowed down with everybody else in the alley. I always assume, yeah, she got hers. Whereas the movie, we obviously see her hide in the little, you know, crevice and then crawls away. Of course, then we get our bookend with Josh Hardnett at the end to possibly assume that she gets her her comeuppance. Uh, but those were really the main main differences I saw with the big fat kill. Other than that. Exactly what you saw in the comic. Pretty much. And then I'm not going to really break down that yellow bastard all that much. It was pretty much 100%. I think the only thing they changed was the the way the ending looked. Because in the comic book, you see uh, Hardigan pull his gun, and then we just see the word bam or boom. Yeah. And you never actually see Hardigan shoot himself. Yeah, you don't. You just see him put it up to his head and then. And then you just see the word bam. And that's literally the last panel of the comic is the word bam or boom, whatever it was. But I I thought the visual of him putting it to his forehead and then showing the black with him silhouetted in white. I thought that worked cinematically very well. Wonderfully. So, all right, we've 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 hinted at this. Let's go ahead and talk about this. Let's talk about the the chronological order. Oh, it's a mess. Yeah. So the movie's almost in chronological order, but it's impossible to actually put it in chronological order when you're telling these sor- stories so separately. Uh, so they do try it by telling Hardigan's story of the past at the beginning. Um, where you see Nancy as a little girl and him rescuing her and him getting portrayed and shot down and all that. We do get to see that. But then when they were, this is where I got confused by it. Then when they return to Hardigan's story at the end of the movie, they're still in that timeline 
because Nancy's still the little girl visiting Hardigan in the hospital. Right. Do you think maybe they could have maybe intertwined Hardigan's story a little bit more? Like maybe in between Marv's story and Dwight's story, maybe that's where you put the hospital scene with Hardigan? And maybe Hardigan's story is broken up throughout the movie? Well, I, I see what you're saying. How long does a guy stay in the hospital, though? I mean, they they marked the passage of time as being like eight years. And then, well, I mean, that was that was the whole thing. Eight years start to finish. So that includes his hospital stay, his stint in jail. I just kind of imagine like, you know, let's check in on Hardigan. And it's just him like folding like an origami like crane in his prison cell. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, enough yeah. of that. Let's get back to Dwight, you know, killing somebody. Yeah, I don't know. That that was the part that I think got me, though, was that you, you've got the hospital scene and Nancy comes in and Nancy is still the 10 year old uh, girl that she was at the beginning of the movie. And mm-hmm. so they don't even pass time until once they're telling Hardigan's story. Right. So it almost makes you question. So why did they put the that one part of Hardigan's story at the beginning of the movie? Huh? If no time has passed until, and then we come back to the exact same time when we come back to Hardigan's movie. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So it's a very valid point. It's almost like, you know, you, you did all this attention to detail on everybody else's, you know, weaving uh, characters into everybody else's story, but then you just kind of, kind of drop the ball in this one arena. Well, or maybe, see, I just can't, I don't know how they, how, because Hardigan's story is the one that takes the most time. Right. Because like you're saying, it, it encompasses eight to nine years uh, of story, whereas the other ones are happening like in a night. And so, it, yeah, it did make it very challenging. And of course, I mean, there's even the fact that we see Marv's story. We see Marv get electrocuted uh, at the end. We see Kevin get eaten by the wolves. And then they both show up in Dwight and... Hardigan story. I mean, Hardigan passes by as Kevin's sitting there reading a Bible, yeah. which works in a com- works in the comics because you've read Mar- uh, Marv's story, and then you know a couple years later you're reading the next one and you see Marv, you know, and you see you're like, oh hey look there was you know, and it makes you a little bit more excited. But when we've just seen them die, you know, 10, 20 minutes before we see them again in the movie, it does make it very confusing. I'm gonna say they should have. Like you said, just they, they give you the introduction. Hey, these are the characters. All right, some time has passed. Like, here's him in the hospital. Here's him in jail. And, like, as soon as he gets, like, the, what is it, the letter with the finger in it or the envelope with the finger in it, mm-hmm. like, cut. And then yeah. now you can, you know, see yeah. him, him getting out. That, that That's actually exactly what I, would, what I would say is that maybe you do, maybe Hardigan's story is the bookends. And you do Hardigan's story all the way up till the finger. And then you tell Marv's story. Then you tell Dwight's story. And then you pick back up with Hardigan because that would be more, to me, more chronological. Because I want to say when Hardigan and Nancy are, are uh, driving on the road, I think this is either before or after they've shot at the Yellow Bastard, they get sideswiped by a vehicle. If this is the particular sequence I'm thinking of, isn't it driven by Marv and uh, Wendy? Oh, possibly. I want to say they made a cameo, and that that kind of ties it back into, you know, during this particular point, this yeah. this story is happening, but it's going the opposite direction. Well, because that's the thing, Hardigan's story 
technically happens before Marv's story ends. Yeah. Because Hardigan raids the farm and kills the Yellow Bastard before Marv raids the farm. Right. Yeah, it's really hard. Now, in the extended cut, and again, I've never seen the extended cut, but from what I did in my research, in the extended cut, I understand that they just flat out separated the stories. I'm trying to remember. Like they're told, that. like they are told just in separate chunks. Like Hardigan, to, again, this is just what I kind of read mm-hmm. that Hardigan's story is not split between the beginning and the end. I think you're like right. They tell Marv's story, then they tell Dwight's story, then they tell Hardigan's story from beginning to end. But what's weird, because like I said, I watched. I watched the extended cut uh, to prepare for this and could not tell you if that's how it happened or not. It's almost like <laughs> I remember it the way that I originally saw the movie, but yeah. now I just remember these you know, extra scenes that got cut out and, and deleted. I, I have a question. Let's get into that yellow bastard a little bit. Okay. There's a scene that happens in that yellow bastard, which I even went back and looked at the pages in the comic. When Hardigan is being is is hanging, wakes up and he's hanging, and the yellow bastard has Nancy. The first thing we see is the yellow bastard is injecting Nancy in the neck with a yellow substance. His life essence. Well, and see, that's the thing that doesn't happen in the comic. No, we do not see a needle injecting Nancy. And so my question is, okay, so so what did he inject her with? Because it doesn't come back up. It's not mentioned again. Are we just supposed to throw it out as that's what he does to keep her kind of sedated, paralyzed, yeah, like and a sedative. Yeah, laying there? Well, you know, it. this isn't the great answer. It's hard to answer this question because we don't know what exactly made that yellow bastard a yellow bastard. Yeah. Yeah, like, like what did his what did his father inject him with? We know his dad spent a lot of money, you know, growing back his his ear and you his know weapon. Yeah, his his <laughs> his ear and his weapon, and that the side effect turned him yellow. Uh, but we never know yellow what exactly you know bulbous and I can only imagine maybe the years of surgery and having lost certain appendages. Maybe he's got like a, a strong cocktail of morphine and sedatives flowing through and maybe maybe it is his blood who knows yeah because that was my and that gets us into all the we kind of mentioned earlier all the different splashes of color yeah again i haven't read uh all of the comics especially like all the ones in the sixth book and but to my knowledge is the yellow bastard the only color that exists in any of the comics as far as uh in the stories yes um notably yes but you got uh, in the Booze, Broads, and Bullets book, say that five times fast, you've got Blue Eyes is the name of a story. And, and her eyes are actually blue in the comic? Yes. Uh, and then you've got The Babe Wore Red, which is another Dwight McCarthy story, which I feel deserves its own movie. Just because it's a, a beautiful story. It's not enough to make a movie, but man, it's good. Yeah, but I, I do know that at least in the four that make up this, uh, so the customer's always right, uh, the hard goodbye, the big fat kill, and that yellow bastard, that's the only color from the comic is actually the yellow bastard. Correct. But I did like the other use of color, like we talked about earlier, especially Goldie. The fact that 
goldy. It's you know, it's it's very subtle, but it's not just that we see her blonde hair, but her skin even has a gold complexion to it. Yes. And I, I thought that was great. It also worked really well when Wendy comes to visit Marv in prison later. We see her transition. Yes. From Goldie into Wendy. And I thought that was genius. I did. I, and I, I'll tell you, I was waiting to, it was going to be one of those things where I was like, all right, I'm going to let him get this point out and then I'm going to bring this up. And man, if you didn't nail it right then and there, but yeah, when I was watching it, it and I've watched this a hundred times in the past, but when I watched it this last time, that was when it dawned on me when, when she walks in and she's, you know, backlit and, golden hair just light glowing skin and he calls her goldie and then she dims out goes back to gray everything's black and white and he's like oh it's you wendy and and i I was like man that's that's killer yeah and it, it makes those characters separate in the movie whereas in the comic they look exactly the same yes i mean but to put that in there and even showing marv's mental state at that moment where he sees Goldie uh, and not just confusing Wendy for Goldie, he sees Goldie. Uh, I just thought was genius. And then we talked about eyes, Becky's blue eyes. We get the, I thought it was, I actually thought it was brilliant. And the customer's always right. We get the flash of her green eyes when he mm-hmm. actually mentions them. Uh, Cardinal Rourke also, for some reason we get his eye color green uh, popping out. But here's here's where I was a little I, I heard Robert Rodriguez talk about this in the commentary, but I don't know how much how I feel about the artistic decision. What were your thoughts about the blood kind of being inconsistent? Like sometimes it's red, sometimes it's white. Yeah. So um, when I did my research, the, the best answer I came up with was it was kind of difficult to get that get that white splash of blood consistent every time because the various, I think it was a green screen they used mostly for this, but at times like, you know, you see red backgrounds and they said that the lighting was, was hard to get consistent for each shot to do it that way. Every time that sometimes you had, uh, you had bleeding color from, from the different lights and stuff they were using. Yeah. And I, I did get that. And I got, there was the scene where he wanted the blood to splash onto Miho's face without her blinking. And of course making it red makes it really stand out. But I think to me, it it made it confusing when you've got like uh, Marv, you know, he gets all cut up by Kevin and you see all of this red blood all over his face. But then later when he's getting beaten by that, dude random dude there's it's all there's no red blood it's all white blood splash white yeah and so it was for me it was the st- it was stuff like that where it was like okay but why was the blood red at that moment but now the exact same blood is white for this scene like i think that's where my confusion comes from i think it just made for a better shot when they were doing the the black background panels just that yeah. contrast Another one that just stuck out to me, and this is completely random, so I'm just going to mention it, and then we can move on if you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Dwight's red shoes. I love Dwight's red shoes. That inspired me <laughs> to start buying. I've always been a fan of Converse shoes anyway, uh, but for that, like, 
There was like a three to four year period where I went exclusively red. I just thought it's it was just completely random because you first I think you first get a good look at him when he's standing on the ledge when Shelly is leaning out. Yeah. And I'm just I'm standing there going, why are his shoes red? Like, why? Like, what purpose does have him having red shoes? I don't know. That's just what it was for me. I don't know, but I can almost promise you that, you know, it was around this time where that that phone filter was becoming popular, that phone app. I'm sorry, it wasn't even a filter. It was an app at the time where you could black and white everything and then highlight the color. Yeah. And I may or may not have taken several photographs of myself and done the red shoe highlight. <laughs> Big fan. And final thing, and we mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the background, that's the dialogue. The thing that makes Frank Miller so great as a writer is the dialogue and whether or not it works in the movie. So here's my one complaint. So in a comic, when you have a character have a really long thought, a really long monologue, soliloquy, whatever you want to call it, that's okay. Because when you're reading a comic, time stops when you read all of that. But in a movie, time doesn't stop. And so we get like Hardigan driving for what seems like forever, or we get Marv walking down an alleyway that seems to never end because they have to get out all of this dialogue. Well, I mean, you, you think like, you know, you're vacuuming your floor, having your own little, you know, inner thoughts. You don't, you don't just stop there in the middle of the floor on that one track and think. Yes, but nobody wants to watch you vacuuming the room while you're thinking all of this. I don't know. Maybe they needed to give them some some more like interesting things to do. I mean, I think that was just my thing was that, you know, we're just watching something. We're, we're just we just got this shot of Bruce Willis driving the car while he's just talking. <laughs> and, and again, great dialogue, great writing. It's just I think that was those were the couple of moments that I'm just going, this is where the comic does not translate well into a movie. Yeah. Like Dwight sitting there lamenting over like his terrible fortune, like, Oh goodness, the hookers didn't give me enough gas. And he's sitting there in his internal monologue. And because he's monologuing, he's, Oh crap, I missed my turn. Hard mm-hmm. Huey. They never talk about that. How, how the characters are so deep in thought that, you know, it's, it's gotta be distracting to, to be that eloquent with your inner monologue. I mean, that's the, that's the noir part of the story. All right. Anything else uh, you want to point out, mention, say about the, uh, the movie or the comics? Um, I've, I've got literally pages, but then again, like we said at the beginning, like we could go on and on and on about each one of these, you know, books, such a deep mythos. You touched on it earlier. Um, any news? The last thing that I had was uh, from an article in uh, from Deadline by Mike Fleming Jr. and that was dated November of 2019, where Legendary Television had actually they were talking with Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller on doing a series. They had guaranteed them yeah. see, uh, season one. So do you have any new news on that? Have you seen anything? No, that was, yeah, I forgot that we had mentioned we were going to talk about that. No, it was the same thing. Um, I think the only thing to add was I heard it was it was going to go to Netflix. But yeah, no. I, but again, you're looking at, this came out in 2005. Mm-hmm. It took nine years. So that's, you know, 2014 for a Dame to, uh, Dame to Kill For comes out. And we're currently only seven years since that. So they still got a couple of years. Yeah. Before. <laughs> We get 
maybe Sin City the series. But that I do agree, and I've said this before with other uh, comics on the show before. I do think that this is a comic book story that would benefit from being told in a serial uh, yeah. platform. There's just so much in the world of you know this this story that you could go back and do, and they they even in, uh, said they would you know consider introducing new characters and and all of that. But you got to be careful with, you know, when you start when you start uh, separating from the comic, you know, that's when sometimes you you lose. Like I know for me, The Walking Dead, as soon yes. as they started going away from the comic, I stopped caring about the show. Did not watch anything after that. But uh. you can also make it work. I mean, the HBO series for The Watchmen, mm-hmm. that's a good show, even though Absolutely. it's not not necessarily tied into the comics. Well, and two, like uh, a Dame to Kill for obviously didn't perform as well as they thought it would. Because uh, I know wait they were nine years. True. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. And, you know, watching it, going back and watching it, I will say it's it's one of my favorite books to read. But as far as movies go, it just it felt like it was missing something. Some, it felt like it was missing, I don't know, some of the original magic from the first movie. Can't quite put yeah. my finger on it. Well, I mean, you've got, again, you're talking about a nine-year gap. So having these actors have to reconnect with these characters. You did, unfortunately, have to replace Michael Clark Duncan because he had unfortunately passed away. So they replaced him with Dennis Haysbert. And I don't know. I mean, maybe Robert Rodriguez didn't have as much of a hand in that one because you look at you know Frank Miller did this one and then Frank Miller went, Oh, I can do this. And then we got the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Frank Miller probably does need a little bit more Robert Rodriguez hovering over him, uh, to, to make a good movie. But yeah, you don't know. There's a lot of possibilities, but let's get into our final decisions. Yeah. Bag it, stack it or trade it. Uh, I know you're new David, but I know you've also listened to the show. You're familiar with how bag it, stack it and trade it works. Yes, sir. All right. Awesome. Well, then I will let you go first. Is this one, I kind of have a feeling, but is this one that you are going to bag it, stack it, or trade it? So, because this is my first time, I'm going to ask if this is a possibility. I've always been one of those weird guys that when when I really attach to something, I will bag it and stack it. I'm I'm okay with that. I know what you mean by that. Yes. Yeah, it. I will bag it because it's always, like I said, I I can always find something about these characters that I can relate to, that I can connect to, and sometimes I just want to hear. I just want to hear those long monologues and and driving and all of that stuff. I just want to hear that and read it on the printed page. So I go back to them a, a bunch of times, but I also, like I said, it's it's near and dear to me. So I have. I have it where I, you know, have my pristine edition and then I have my rough copy yeah. that's been thumbed through and left beside the bathtub and all of that. Mm-hmm. So bag and stack. Yeah. And that was my thing. When I came up with the bag and stack, it traded. It was really I came up with just those three because it sounded good. No, I like it. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I, and I think my bag, it is more bag it and stack it mm-hmm. because you're bagging it, but you, you're going to want to come back to it time and time again. I do yeah. agree with that. Um, I've got my copies that are that are mine, you know, that yeah. I can go back and read. 
but yeah. I'm I'm not above like you know, you get a friend that's going through a rough patch with a lady and you're like, Hey man, you're like Dwight McCarthy. And they're like, what? And I'm like, take this, take this book, read it. You can have it. Just keep it. And I'll go out and, you know, replace another one. Yeah. 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 But see, to me that, that is Baggett. Me for this movie. Uh, I, I don't dislike it. I don't, but for me, it is a stack it because yeah, it's great to look at. It's visually stunning. It's a very interesting style just like the comic. But for me, it's a little too faithful of an ad- adaptation. Like I said earlier, if you've read the comics, then when you watch the movie, you were just watching a moving comic. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't surprised by anything. Me, and I do a, I read a lot, not just comics. I read a lot of novels. Uh, and then when they're turned into movies, part of me actually likes when they change it. You know, I, I like when they change the ending or when they change a character or they remove a subplot. I kind of like that because uh, it makes makes it interesting to see how are they going to interpret it. And so that's where I that's why I kind of move it into the stack. It, it it's not it's also not one in terms of a movie. Now, we're not talking the comic here, but in terms of a movie, it's not one that I go, yeah, I want to watch Sin City. It's not one that I'm just going to sit here one day when I'm bored and go. Yeah, I want to watch Sin City. So that's kind of where I put put it there again. It's just kind of stacking. It's there. I might look at it if I'm thinking about it or someone mentions it, but it's not one I'm going to go to. It's not a, not a go to for me. Well, I mean, after you after you see the movie, and then like you said, the director's cut and then the commentary, and you know, you do you do hit that point of uh, you know diminishing return on investment where you're like all right I've gone as far as I can go with this particular installment like where do we go from here I need I need a new something All right any last words anything else you want to you want to add in David No sir I think we've I think we've covered just about everything everything that I had a tick mark by I enjoyed being here Oh and I enjoyed having you it was a uh, very nice I'm very excited to do another one of these you know might, might even come back and do a dame to kill uh, kill for with you uh, we'll definitely have to set something up uh, for the future but thank you David and thank you everybody for listening uh, go out and rate and review us uh, if you're enjoying the podcast on Apple it helps build this show up gets us more uh, attention on Apple podcast. And uh, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Uh, we're at Moving Panels on all of those platforms. You can email us at movingpanels at gmail.com. But for today, I'm Laramie Wells, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Hello movie viewers and fellow movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm the creator and host of Movie Views Presents the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. See, I love the 80s and I have a great appreciation and nostalgic passion for the classic 80s flicks that birthed my love for movies and ultimately helped shape my childhood. On each episode, I'll discuss, with a special guest co-host of course, a different film from the 1980s. We'll share memories, favorite characters, iconic scenes, and even share some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. We'll discuss famous blockbusters like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Coming to America, Ghostbusters, Dirty Dancing, Top Gun, Die Hard, and many, many more. 
as well as some other cult classics and even lesser known flicks we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores. Remember those? No matter what 80s flick we choose to talk about, we'll always have a good time, so come and check us out. You can find the 80s Flick Flashback podcast on major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and more. Be sure to subscribe or follow so you don't miss a single episode. Once again, I'm Tim Williams, and I hope you'll join me for the next 80s Flick Flashback. <laughs>